the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. That uh, we um, bother him <laughs> regardless, and that is our good friend Brandon J. Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, columnist for the Asia Times, so many other things. He has uh, pieces in the Washington Times, Real Clear Politics, and you can hear him here weekly. Um, it's his column in the Asia Times I want to focus on uh, today uh, with him. Uh, and it's obviously about what's taking place between Russia, Ukraine, and I should say among Russia, Ukraine, and the United States. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You betcha. You betcha. All right. You tell me what you want to uh, tell the audience <laughs> about what we should know. I will tell you what I said on a podcast, and I'm not a foreign policy uh, guru or expert like you are, but I put it this way. I said um, – I think history books are replete with um, bad examples of weak nations with weak leadership going up against tough nations with hardened leadership. Right. And that's everything I know about this crisis right now. That's right. it. That's all I got. Right. Well, you know, our friend Mike Pompeo is getting lambasted by the lunatics on MSNBC for a recent interview he gave. Hey, Brandon, I'm having a hard time hearing you, buddy. I'm just no. wondering if... Oh. If the microphone's off, can you, can you yeah. Oh, me? there it is. That's much better. Thank okay. you, sir. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, our friend Mike Pompeo was lambasted uh, uh, recently by the lunatics on MSNBC for basically saying that when he was Secretary of State under Trump, he knew he had to have his himself and his team whenever they dealt with the Russians under Putin. They had to be very disciplined because Putin was a very disciplined and tough and smart actor and as a as somebody who went up against Putin regularly in these diplomatic talks, Pompeo said he had a lot of respect for Putin because Putin was a very keen and slick operator, uh with a who was a guy who had a very bad hand, Russia did, and Putin's played it very deftly. And uh that's a fact. And so when you talk about weak versus strong leadership, you know, America has all of the advantages really a country could ever desire, even now in our somewhat weakened state. And yet we have horrible leaders under Joe Biden and his team, whereas Russia, a country that has the, the economy the size of Italy and maybe in the next five years will shrink to that of Spain, uh, suddenly Russia is running circles around the United States as well as our advanced European allies, which should tell you just how bad the neoliberal, neoconservative uh, elite in Washington and in Brussels and London uh, and Berlin and, and um, uh, Paris really are. And so you're right. That is the bottom line of weak versus strong leadership. Putin may have a weak hand he was dealt when he became the leader of, of Russia. But my goodness, has he through his leadership? And that's not because I like Putin. I'm not saying it's not like Putin. But I'm just saying with his leadership and his vision, uh, he's accomplished quite a bit, quite a bit, considering where Russia was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Uh, and it's very scary to think about where they'll be in another you know, five to 10 years at this rate. I want my country's enemies to quake and be uncertain 
in the sense of they don't know what our response will be exactly. because we have a leader who is creative, strong, and serious. We may yep. have a leader who's creative. Strong and serious is not what he is. Yes. Um, yes. Putin is all of the above. He's all of the yes. above. He is creative, he is strong, and he is serious. Right. And we right. sit here and twiddle our thumbs thinking, okay, all of this is normal as we try our best to say strong words to the American people about how angry we are about him while we send him the weakest of signals and messages, whether it's telling him a year ago that these are the infrastructure sites you can't attack, presumably meaning right. you can attack others or threatening responses if he doesn't stop the attacks he's currently engaged in, which we never follow up on, or uh, any number of things from, well, we'll do sanctions after he invades as yeah. if sanctions have ever – Am I, I keep challenging my audience – I don't know of an example where sanctions have ever changed the behavior of an enemy country. None. Now we're doing it after the fact. I just don't yeah. think we could possibly look weaker. Yeah. I, I'm glad we're not – I mean, put, count me as one who's n glad we're not going to war with Russia. I would not want such a thing. But count me as one who doesn't think our president of the United States should be broadcasting that to Russia. Well, yes. And, uh, you know, there's an added problem, uh, which is that um, the the Russians are expecting us to to be tougher, and we're not being. Yeah, and yeah, and, yeah. That's and they, right. They're they're trying well, to push against a door, and the door's open. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, like, the crazy part is basically the 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 you know the Russians are now at a point where they now have one hundred and ninety thousand infantry. That means tanks, personnel. They've got you know heavy stuff. One hundred ninety thousand troops backed up by that heavy equipment, right on the edge of eastern Ukraine, looking out across these, these now roadblocks that are being built by the Ukrainian military, uh, and saying, you know, if the Americans and the Europeans are this dysfunctional and responding to what was really a predictable move by the Russians into eastern Ukraine, the predominantly Russian-speaking region that really Moscow's had a lot of influence over for the last 10 years anyway, uh, the Russians are going, well, heck, if the Americans are going to be this weak, about responding to us here, uh, maybe maybe we can go for broke. Maybe we can take the whole the whole thing. Let's just go for the whole kit and caboodle. And I think it's very telling that 24 hours ago, uh, the leader of the Transnistria uh, breakaway movement in Moldova uh, just flew to Moscow and had a meeting with the Duma, which is their parliament, and said, "Hey, we in Transnistria, we're a Russian-speaking region. We're right next door to Ukraine." We want to get the same treatment that these breakaway republics in Luhansk uh, and uh, Donetsk, eastern Ukraine, just got. We want you, Mr. Putin and the Duma of Russia, to recognize Transnistria as a Russian, pro-Russian breakaway republic from Moldova. And why don't you move in the way you're moving into eastern Ukraine? So now you have the potentiality of a land bridge being established from this Russian invasion from uh, eastern Ukraine through uh, the rest of Ukraine, possibly into Transnistria, which, you know, again, the, the West isn't doing anything. Uh, and the way that we're talking about this is so counterproductive. The Russians are expecting us to be tough, and we're not being tough. So the Russians are going, hey, you know, let's push farther. The Russians, I always say in my book, Winning Space, I mentioned, I said, the Russians are like the Klingons from Star Trek, okay? They're, they want to fight. They're looking for a fight. They're looking to, to rough the, the other side up. It's about glory. It's about restoring the glory of their empire. And when you're dealing with people like that, you've got to be tough. 
and we're not being tough. It's very interesting, isn't it? And I know the media doesn't want to talk about this, and in fact, they're trying to create an alternative narrative now. But common sense dictates this never happened under Trump. Why is that? And it gets back to what you were saying about unpredictability. Trump, whatever you thought of him, Vladimir Putin and his Siloviki, they did not have a good read on him because they didn't know what was going to set him off. And because of that, I think they treaded more carefully than they ordinarily would have with your typical American leader than, say, with even a Ted Cruz or a Jeb Bush, because they have an idea of the foreign policy preferences of those kinds of pre- Republicans, and they, they have the foreign policy, they, they have those people, they know who they are, and they know what their advice is going to be to those American politicians in a time of crisis. With Trump, he had all new advisors. A lot of them were not known to the Russians very well. They had not really been in positions of authority over the last 30 years. The Russians couldn't predict anything, and then Trump himself was unpredictable. And so that all worked in our favor for, you know, preventing the invasion of Ukraine. But now we've got, you know, bumbling Biden, who is very predictable and very weak. I want people to remember, too, Brandon, and I want to get to your Asia Times column in a moment. Can you stay a little while or do you have to run? Yeah, yeah, as long as you want. All right. Thank you. Our usual seminar. Thank you. I appreciate it. Brandon Weikert is our guest, publisher of the Weikert Report. Uh, Brandon, you know, I want people to remember, too, for all the alarms and excursions we heard from Hillary Clinton and the Democrats after 2016 about how soft and curing of favor Donald Trump was on Vladimir Putin. I really want people to remember what the tenure of Barack Obama, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton was with Vladimir Putin. They were much more uh, hat in hand than the Trump administration, not just the reset button. I I mean, people forget Syria, how bad Syria was, and he just turned it all over, just turned it over to Putin. Well, well, remember also, uh, let's just go back. Every time a Democrat's been in power since Bill Clinton, Ukraine in particular has gotten the shaft, right? So Bill yeah. Clinton came in and he won't. Uh, uh, yeah. So yeah. Well, it, let me hit the quick break. Yeah, yeah. Let me hit this quick break and, and we'll pick up on that when we come back, if you don't <laughs> mind. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Uh, he is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how he spells his name. He's the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower columnist for the Asia Times and many other outlets as well. Foreign policy expert. Pretty good at domestic policy, too, if I don't, if he doesn't mind me saying. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. It's a delight to have Brandon J. Weikert with us, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, geopolitical analyst. Brandon, right before the break, I asked you a long question and gave you no time to answer it. (laughs) People forget how appeasing uh, and soft the uh, Obama administration was, particularly under the foreign policy guidance of uh, of Kerry and Clinton, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, to Russia, to Vladimir Putin specifically. Right. I mean, in any number of cases, I mentioned Syria. We talked about, I mentioned reset. Uh, there's that off mic comment about missile defense. Anyway, y- your take. Yeah, well, basically, uh, every time a Democrat's in power, suddenly Russia gets stronger and stronger. We saw this with the Clinton administration making the the nukes uh, that, that the Soviet Union left behind in Ukraine, making the Ukrainians give that up in exchange for a 
very weak promise of American military defense if Russia ever came again knocking, and well, here they are. Uh, not that I believe we should be fighting for Ukraine. We shouldn't be. Not now. We, we're, we're stretched too thin. Uh, and then Crimea in 2014, again, the Democrats, Obama and Biden, were in charge, as was Hillary Clinton. And uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, they gave away Crimea. They just let the, the Russians walk in uh, and then start the stuff in eastern Ukraine. That's been on a slow boil since 2014. Uh, and then again with Biden. Biden's in charge now, and, and the Russians literally launched the largest invasion. I don't think people quite realize this. This is the largest military invasion, I believe, since the Second World War. Wow. Definitely, definitely the largest military movement by the Russians in Europe since um, the Cold War. Wow. And, so, and, I, and I believe that it is the largest military operation or Russian operation in Europe since the Second World War, since 1945. Wow. So that, those are sort of the stakes we're dealing with, and it's always in, re, in response or relation to a very weak and kind of, you know, mealy-mouthed, linguine-spined uh, Democratic Party running Washington. And, of course, now they're running around at the Huffington Post trying to blame Trump, saying that this was all Trump's fault, which is just the height of insanity, uh, because this never happened under Trump. And the reason was because, again... He was viewed in Russia as tough. He was viewed as a stern, tough guy. You didn't know what you were going to get, and that unpredictability made it harder. And it's true. Trump did not hate Russia the way the Democrats clearly do. And so I think there was some degree where Putin sort of stepped back and said, well, let's see what I can get from this buckaroo. Maybe I can get a deal and not have to risk a war because a war could be very costly for me as the Russian strongman with a very weak economy. And here we are, though. Putin's going for broke because, A, he's running out of time. He's got to make some moves before Russia really starts to contract demographically in the next decade. And, B, he's also looking at his opposition saying Biden is the best they can do. He's their Chernyenko from the Soviet Union. Yeah, Chernyenko, you know? right, right, he, right. I mean, this is a superpower in, in decline. So why aren't I going to push and see how hard I can get? You know, it was Lenin, and I'm not saying that, that Putin was a, is a Leninist because he's not. He's a Russian imperial nationalist. Uh, he's a czarist, if anything, with himself as the czar. But Putin is living by that Leninist idea of keep probing with bayonets, pushing forward through mush until you hit steel. Well, unfortunately, the West has got a lot of mush, and so he's going to keep pushing. Now, the only thing for him that I think is going to be a big problem is it looks like right now I'm getting reports from people in Ukraine that there are explosions right now going on, and it's looking like the, the Russians are probably going to go in very soon to the rest of Ukraine. If Putin does that, his problem is going to be he's turning what really is his version of a Grenada or Panama invasion that was a cakewalk for the Americans. And this is Eastern Ukraine is a cakewalk for Putin because there's so many Russians there. But he's going to risk now going into Western Ukraine, which has got a lot of pro-American, pro-European populations, much more so than pro-Russian. And they're better armed and better equipped, and I would say better trained. Uh, he's now going to run the risk of suddenly invading the rest of Ukraine, becoming like the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, where it suddenly looks like he has this quick victory overnight, and the, the enemy falls, and you take the country, but then you're left owning the country, as Colin Powell once said of Iraq. And I think that this could easily become, in the long term or in the aggregate, a very bad thing for Russian foreign policy if Putin's not careful. And if I were, you know, sitting in the Kremlin, I would say, look, I've got the, the Russian-speaking parts of eastern Ukraine. I think I'm going to hold my, hold my uh, you know, my, my, my fire here and see what I can get now through negotiation. 
But it seems like Putin is being goaded to act even more brazenly because he thinks the West, particularly Washington, led by Biden, is so unbelievably feckless and weak. Mm -hmm. And I think that our own weakness is inviting greater territorial aggrandizement that otherwise might not have happened had Biden just been consistent and tough Mm -hmm. in the beginning. Mm The Iraq analogy is kind of interesting to me. This is the basis of my next article. Okay, yeah, Uh, there's something to it because there's a sociological element. We are not the Russians. We're more Canadian than Russian in many respects. It's a different people. It's a different culture. It's a different worldview. I said to someone the other day, I don't know if I'm right, but I said, and I think Afghanistan was the analogy, but it might as well have been Iraq, as you put it. Um, yes, they will leave a quagmire, but it takes them a lot more blood than it takes yes. us. You agree with that? Yes. yes. Now, the okay. only thing for the Russians today is their demographic woes, as our friend Edward Lutlock yeah. has been you know, talking about on Twitter for the last year, is that unlike with the Soviet-Afghan war, where they had 500,000 troops and they could just bleed out in the desert and the mountains as long as you know, a decade would allow them to, today it's a lot harder because their military is smaller, and they don't have as many people to keep throwing into the meat grinder. And just remember the Chechen war in the late 90s and early 2000s, Putin ultimately had to stop the war that he had agitated for in Chechnya because the Russian people were getting fed up of seeing their few children that they have being sent home in body bags. Right. Now, ultimately, ultimately, Putin was able to affect a political outcome that favored Russia in Chechnya, but it was not exactly how he envisioned things ending up. So they're going to be, I think, if he goes into the rest of Ukraine, which I think he's going to, if he goes into the rest of Ukraine, he is now going to be biting off a lot more than I think he can chew. And he's going to have to basically bleed himself in Ukraine, which is really going to harm Russia's ability to do other things in its near abroad that it needs to do. And as it weakens Russia, it's going to only compel China to get more assertive. And it's going to rejigger the Eurasian map yet again. Uh, And so, you know, I don't know how this thing ends, but I can tell you right now, because of decisions that President Joe Biden made, we this country is now facing the prospect of at the very least a major regional war in Europe led by the Russians because we have been so unbelievably weak and half hearted in our responses. And that doesn't mean we should have been sending American troops to go fight for Ukraine, but it should have meant in April of last year when Biden took power and went to go meet the Russians. When you meet the Russians, you don't give them that Nord Stream two pipeline waiver. Absolutely you don't, right. You let don't, let, you let don't me take a quick break, Brandon. Let me let me take a quick break on that and pick sure. up on it when we come back. And I want to talk a little bit about NATO too, and what this means okay. for NATO. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon J. Weikert. We'll take your calls as well. I see a few on hold. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, brought to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. So, Brandon, uh, I didn't yeah. know if you wanted to finish a point, but I, I and I'm sorry, I just lost the track of it uh, right before the break. Yeah. But I did have a question about NATO. If I can pick up on that, unless you did sure want thing. to complete it, so I don't honestly. You'll I integrate of, it. You're, uh, you're yeah. like me. You'll you'll yeah. you'll make it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <You'll>, <laughs> yeah. you're like me. You'll give the yeah. Um, Branton, so when Donald Trump was president and when he was running for president the first time, there was all this talk and chatter that he didn't believe in NATO and all that yeah. sort of stuff, overblown, of course. Mm-hmm. But he was on to something and he got some greater compliance from them. 
But I'm beginning to wonder when we're watching what's taking place and how Russia can, with really not more than two blinks of the eye, do what it's doing in Ukraine. And I know Ukraine's not a NATO member. I get that. It's as close to a non-member as you can be, as close to a NATO member as a non-member as you can be. I mean, it just looks like European alliance is increasingly feckless. And yeah. and I'm just, is something being said about NATO by what we're watching or is truly it irrelevant because Ukraine's not in it? Well, I think the problem began when in 2000, really 2004, George W. Bush and the neocons uh, started agitating for regime change in Ukraine. Remember, at the time, there was a somewhat pro-Russian regime running things and they did the Orange Revolution. Yeah. And some And Putin certainly believed that the the Americans were behind that. Uh, and then 2014 came in, and, uh, you know, we had the Euromaidan, in which Yanukovych, who was pro-Russian somewhat, uh, was looking to uh, get Ukraine. He was torn between whether he should get Ukraine into the Russian-Eurasian economic union or if he should listen to his people in, in Kiev and the western part of Ukraine especially, who wanted to join the EU. Uh, in 2008, there was also nonstop rhetoric before, during, and after the Russian invasion of Georgia, uh, from European leaders in particular, but also American leaders, that Ukraine's eventually going to join, at some you know, unstated date, the NATO alliance. The moment those things started happening is when Putin really started moving against Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we talk about NATO, we need to talk about it in the sense of what is its objective. And okay. since the Soviet Union is gone, yeah. I don't really know what its objective is. And if that's to say we shouldn't have it, I do believe, I've talked to you about this before, because clearly there's a problem with Russia. But the constant idea, or the idea that it constantly needs to keep expanding, 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 when we knew, going back to Gorbachev, when he pulled Soviet troops out of Ukraine and even left 300 nukes there, the idea was Ukraine would be independent. It could even be democratic, but it could not join the Western alliance officially or unofficially. It had to be neutral. It had to be a buffer zone between Russia's territory and the West. And as long as that was respected, you know, anyone from Gorbachev to Yeltsin to Putin to Medvedev back to Putin would have respected that. But because NATO kept talking, at least publicly, like they were going to absorb Ukraine, and then you had the kind of covert things going on behind the scenes in Kiev, uh, where you had American and Western intelligence agencies and these nonprofits trying to do basically a soft regime change that Russia felt was inimical to Russian interests, you now have this setup where the, the pathway to conflict was yet again reopened in Europe for the first time, really since the end of the Cold War. Um, and so when we talk about NATO, we need to make sure it's, A, meant to be a defensive alliance. But a defensive alliance is not supposed to trigger offensive action. And when that happens, it stops being a very worthwhile wild defensive alliance as it's currently made up. And so what we really should have been doing the entire time is saying, look, we want Ukraine to be free. We want Ukraine to be de democratic even. And the Russians seem to be okay with that, but they want it to be neutral. So let's just make sure Ukraine remains neutral and doesn't risk being invaded. Because let's face it, in my opinion, we painted a big target on the back of the Ukrainians. And at the same time we did that by encouraging them to step out of Russia's shadow and do these things, suddenly we also took away their ability to defend themselves with those nukes. Then we, we gave them empty promises that, hey, if Russia ever comes, don't worry. The American GIs will come rushing to your aid. And that's not, of course, going to ever happen. Uh, and then, of course, we told them, don't worry. Even if you're not a member of NATO, 
you will be protected by NATO on some level. And then you look at NATO's primary European members like Germany and France, they don't protect Ukraine. So we really created a situation where it became almost a fait accompli that Putin or someone like Putin in Russia would have gone in to make sure that what they thought was Russia's interests were protected at all costs. And Thank that's you. what you're seeing now. Thank you, Brandon. You got one more segment in you? Can I keep I got it however long you want. I'm, I'm off the right uh, Thank you, Brandon. Smart, clear, and answers the question. That's how you know you're in the presence of someone who knows what they're talking about. That's how you know you're in the presence of brilliance. That's why I keep him around for sure. Brandon J. Weikert will be right back with us. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you in part by the good folks at Balance of Nature. Tomatoes, papayas, bananas, wild blueberries, grapes, apple, strawberries, aloe vera, grapefruit, sweet cherries. Did I say mangoes and pineapples and lemons? That's all that's in the fruit mix of Balance of Nature. They're a blend of 16 whole fruits. Nothing added beyond that. That's it. You take it uh, once a day with their veggies, and you are good to go. 16 whole fruits, 15 whole vegetables in their little vegetarian capsules. No other additives. I take it every single day. It keeps my immunity to high, immunity high and keeps me well. It keeps my energy up as well. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Brandon, I was going to uh, take a call with you if that's okay. I have a few more questions, sure. but I'd uh, love the audience to have a shot with you. Uh, Bob in Phoenix, uh, thanks for your patience. You're on with Brandon J. Weikert. Hey, guys. What a pleasure. It's so nice to talk to such intelligent individuals in the state of Arizona. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very kind, Bob. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, very kind. You know, the original Roosevelt, Teddy, just like Trump, always said, always implied, walk softly and carry a big stick. You don't right. notify or indicate to the enemy what you're going to do. Right. Your buddy Rob called in. He said the State Department and the executive branch doesn't know what they're doing. Right. <coughs> yes, they do. It's <laughs> the total destruction of our, yours and mine, capitalist system of government, and individual freedom, sir, and the destruction of the Bill of Rights. Well, Bob, I take the point. And, Brandon, this is the weird thing is, you know, on any number of policies, you know, I have said that this administration is kind of torn between their right. ideology. Well, maybe three things. Ideology, <clears throat> what they know works, and an election coming up. And the, ideo and, and the ideology is separate from what works, but I think they're more wedded to their ideology. I just think they yeah. are. I used to say they have to appease the left flank of their party. They are the left wing of their – they are the left flank. The entire party is the left flank. So I just think yeah. it's a pure divorce between ideology and result. I think. I think. What's your thought? Well, I think that the biggest issue facing the Democrats is uh, they their ideology doesn't appeal to many people which anymore, uh, which is particularly on like things like the vaccine mandates or, thing, or the, the, the mass mandates. Uh, or even this war potentially with Russia, uh, nobody wants these things. And so they're going into an election year where, yes, their ideology is running up against the reality of electoral politics. And I think the Democrats are getting very scared. Um, and, I, and I think that they're not going to be able to help. This is why they're using force now to get through so many of the things that they wanted to do. Yeah. Build, back, yeah. build Back Better yeah. was going to get pushed through reconciliation 
if it wasn't for right. Right. two Democrat senators right. saying, this is nuts. You can't do this. So, so just think about that, that they're, they're increasingly resorting to the use of force, to this sort of siege narrative in Washington, D.C. They're now, you know, delaying the State of the Union, possibly, or whatever, the, the, this big speech, because they're worried about the truckers showing up in D.C. So this is, this is a narrative building. And so, um, you know, as we're trying to supposedly protect our democracy at, abroad by standing up to Putin's autocracy in G, we're imposing autocracy to ensure the Democrats remain in power, because their policies are so unbelievably um, unpopular that they can't win elections fair and square without resorting to these sort of underhanded methods and these sort of insane, uh, you know, for uses of force to, to get what they want. And it's very tragic. And, and it's, going to, it's going to continue to degrade our competitiveness abroad as well as our political and economic prosperity and stability at home. Because if you have a government that doesn't reflect the will of the majority of the voters, at some point you're going to have a breakdown uh, in everything. And I think we're already starting to see that. And this is a very dangerous point for the United States. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, Brandon, um, you would have thought after Afghanistan, hair would have been on fire and everyone would have said we can only have one rule going forward. Nothing like this again. Nothing like this again. We looked weak. We looked ineffective. We looked like we were lying not only to the world but to ourselves. I got to tell you, it looks that way all over again right now. It just does. It's going to keep happening uh, because the Biden administration is completely in over its head. Um, they, they are all ideologues who've been trained in the supposedly best universities that are completely cloistered away from the rest of the world. Uh, and so when you get people like Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken or, or even the president himself when his brain is working, uh, these are people who live on these very highfalutin theories of academia that are very popular with academics, but they don't have any real-world ap- application. And when you take an ideologue and, an, and a theorist like that and you try to put them in a real-world scenario, they're not going to be able to survive and thrive, and they're going to take the organization down with them. And think about what Biden campaigned on. This is very important. Biden did not campaign as I'm Mr. Change. He didn't. He campaigned on as I will be a return to normal. That's a very rare American campaign slogan. It's very rare that that happens. Most American politicians from either party, like Obama even, and Trump, wanted to be agents of change, and most Americans want that. But when he campaigned, Biden did last election as being I'm going to return to stability and the way things were, the way things were were really bad. And so now we are returning to... You know, inflation, high prices of everything. We're returning to a bad economy, and we're returning to an America that's in retreat because it has overextended itself. Make America why bad it, again, MABA. Right. Yeah. Make it last again. again. Yeah. Why, why, why did it? Why did it overextend itself? Because it was running on these bad theories imported from academia, which are predicated not on the national interest, but they're predicated on this sort of airy one-worldism, globalism. Yeah. Yeah. And you now see that it's sapping our vitality and our strength to the point that there are now real talk about potential civil wars in the United States. Yeah, right I now. know it. I mean, this is insanity. It is. And this is all from this is all from these neoliberal, neoconservative elites who are completely cloistered off from the rest of us, who have no idea what they're doing, who have more in common with people in Brussels or in Lisbon than they do with people, you know, in And Iowa part of that is the ideological yeah. drive. I think that yes. is based on the, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
Brandon Weicker, you, you are such a gift to this show in this country. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good night. You betcha. I'll say it again. Smart, clear, and he answers the question. That's how you know you're in the presence of a real expert, a real expert, a real teacher. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Uh, really appreciate it very much. Gave a speech this morning to a conservative group in town in Mesa, and maybe I'll summarize some of that for you tomorrow. Uh, it was a great group. In uh, in the meantime, let me let me just finish by where I started. And if you're on hold and didn't get on, call back tomorrow. We'll put you right on. Just say you didn't get on today. Happy to do it. Thank you. Uh, Gene Kirkpatrick's 1990 essay about a normal country in normal times. Back then, she wrote, the time when America should bear such unusual burdens is past. With a return to normal times, we can again become a normal nation and take care of pressing problems of education, family, industry, and technology. We can be an independent nation in a world of independent nations. It's interesting. This is what she said should be our posture after the Berlin Wall came down. Pressing problems, education, family, industry, and technology. We could add more, certainly. Healthcare cropped up in the, in, in the interstices since she wrote that. Have we done it? Have we done it? Have we had a leadership, in other words, that is as good as the people? That's the question. I was worried that Aristotle had a point when he said the character of the leadership matches the character of the people. And I think that was true for the regimes he was describing. He didn't envision the kind of regime we have, the cultural and geographical diversity of such. To which I can only say I think we have a country and a regime where the leadership is nowhere close to as good as its people. Not really the point of a Republican form of government, small r. We'll work on that together. Until tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 